This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, we're talking about farming and we're talking about sustainability. Underway at Bloomberg headquarters, the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit. Our next two guests participating in the summit. And let's talk about what they are up to at Syngenta when it comes to sustainability, some big initiatives. Let's bring in Syngenta CEO Eric Fierwald and Alexandra Brand, who is Chief Sustainability Officer at the Basel, Switzerland-based company, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Uh, my co-host, Jason Kelly, out there in our LA Bureau. So nice to have both of you with us. Um, Eric, let's just get right to it. What are you guys doing at Syngenta when it comes to sustainability? Because I do feel like everybody's talking about it. Yeah. Different companies approach it differently. Tell us about your initiatives. First of all, everything we do at Syngenta now has to do with sustainability because agriculture is right at the heart of sustainability. This year, the extreme weather events that farmers all over the world had to deal with was unimaginable before. An eye-opening, I feel like, for many. uh, Unbelievable. If you you were here, you saw the flooding in the United States. And it's not just part of the United States, massive part of the United States. And it wasn't just a five-year, 10-year flood, a historic flood of all times. The same time in Australia, we're having the worst drought in history highest temperature ever recorded in France and other things like that. It's happening all the time. So we have to help farmers deal with climate change, weather extremes. The second thing we have to do is we have to, as an industry, be part of the solution to climate change. We've got to reduce our carbon emissions, help be part of the solution that ends up reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So so climate change is, 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 is halted. That, that, so we've got to do both. And that's what we announced today was $2 billion. Everything we do goes to sustainability, but $2 billion towards breakthrough innovations, things that are really going to help step change things here. All right. So, Alexandra, take us a level down on that $2 billion. How are you going to spend it? Where are you going to spend it? What does that disbursement look like? Yeah. Growers deeply care about their soils. And soils is something which ensures their productivity and at the same time helps to sequester carbon in the soil. So a lot of that money will be spent on good soil management. We are looking at innovating in agricultural systems. So here in the United States, for example, we help growers to decrease the carbon footprint of their farm increase the carbon content of their soil, decrease their water footprint, and with that, connect them to food companies who give them a better revenue for the crops they've grown because they've been growing more sustainable. So this is a model we feel is scalable, and we say we'll put much more money in matching seeds varieties to these soils and digital solutions to ensure you know, the right signs being reported year over year and traceability and transparency for food companies and consumers. How can you move, in terms of sustainability um, actions, move others, whether it's companies that you work with, whether it's your customers, whether it's your suppliers, to get everybody on board, right? Because we really need an all-in focus in order to make a difference. I I think the ultimate here is the consumers want this. Consumers want sustainably grown food. 
So we're starting to work with food companies and NGOs like the Nature Conservancy, who is with us on stage today at the Bloomberg Conference. Right. Uh, but food companies like Kellogg's and General Mills to, to work with farmers in the U.S. to make sure that they're growing using the best sustainability practices, keeping the carbon in the soil, um, the fewest passes over their farm, whatever it takes to have the best sustainability metrics. And then what, what Kellogg's is doing now is, is, is showing far, pictures of farmers in the retail store saying, this farmer, Father, Fa Farmer John, mm -hmm. grew this wheat sustainably that goes into this cereal. So ultimately, we want the, the, the consumer to get the data on the food that they're buying so right. that they can ma make choices around sustainably grown foods. That's the well, answer. I, I, well, and can I just say, Jason, like you and I talk about this about our kids and how they turn around the boxes of things right. and what's in it in terms of ingredients. But I do think, Jason, that we're getting towards a world where people are going to be like, where did this come from? Right. What were the sustainability initiatives? Well, and it's so interesting, too, because with that bottoms-up approach that we're talking about that happens mm -hmm. around our kitchen tables, it feels like, Eric, we're also seeing a top-down from the boardroom level. You know, And I wanted to ask you about that because you've served in very senior positions in a number of companies. You're currently uh, on the board, I believe, of Eli Lilly among others what are those conversations like in the boardroom now versus what they might have been a few years ago well it used to be on the side you know every now and then you'd have a conversation about esg or sustainability or whatever wasn't on the agenda perhaps maybe <laughs> yeah maybe or maybe even you had a committee you know the some a few people that didn't really want to be on that committee but but somebody would do it now it's right at the heart of the board's discussions Alexandra is, is right there with our board talking about sustainability is, 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 is our business. It's not, it's not right. some side thing. Well, that's so interesting, right? Because, you know, for a long time, I feel like in the technology world, we talked about the IT people. It was a whole separate department. Now they have a seat at the table. And I feel like sustainability, it's no longer like, yeah, those are those guys in the back corner. I don't know what they do. You have a seat at the table. You're in the room when decisions are happening, Alexandra. Oh, absolutely. And we understand how much that thinking changes our practice, changes what is demanded from growers. So if we are there, it's absolutely critical for our business success and for the growth. Um, and is it going to all be more expensive? Well, I don't think so. I think technologies are a great driver for productivity and will continue to be so. So I don't expect us to be more expensive in food production, but being able to produce food much more different uh, with good technologies and enabling policies for these technologies. All right, so Eric, let's uh, talk about your business a little bit. We are, after all, Bloomberg. What's next? Uh, IPO has been <laughs> floated. Uh, what do you do next to sort of continue to fund, to build this company, to expand? Yeah, so we were purchased two and a half years ago. We closed our deal with ChemChina. Mm -hmm. yep. We said at that time that we would go public. We planned IPO within five years, so we've got two and a half years. I believe that we're on track. Our, our performance is strong. The markets are challenging. But assuming that, that the, the, the agriculture markets continue to stabilize and, and, and have some improvement, I fully expect us to be able to IPO within the next year, two, two and a half years. Now, you've heard, think, there, there's been word out there that we're working with banks and we're getting ready, which is true, so that whenever the market conditions are right and our performance is right, within the next two years, we're, we'll be ready to go public. Nothing sooner. Well, well, we'll see, but certainly nothing this year. But, but um, you know, something could happen in, in 2020 or 2021. But 
that's not what we're focused on. What we're focused on right now is creating a really great company, delivering strong results, and then the opportunity will open up. One last question, and because we talk so much about being a private company, I mean, under yeah. ChemChina, just 30 seconds, is it nicer to kind of be out of the public eye for a little bit? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's very nice. But I'll tell you, even when we go public again, it's nice to have a, an anchor shareholder that has the long view. Okay. That's willing to allow us to invest in things that take five or 10 years technologies that are really going to make a difference. Love getting some time with both of you. Thank you so much. Eric Fierwald, CEO at Syngenta. Alexander Brand, Chief Sustainability Officer at Syngenta. All right, Rush had it right. Big money going around the world. A lot of big money went into arguably the story of 2019. We talked a lot about, a, a lot about it, Carol Masser, and that yeah. is WeWork. But there's a bigger story here, and Ali Barr joins us to talk about it. He's in our 960 studio in San Francisco talking about that big money and the world of private investing. It's totally upended the way companies get funded, whether they go public, how much they're worth, and whether ultimately they're successful. I don't think that's saying it too big. Ali, tell us about what you found as you went a level deeper to understand the flow of money between private and public here. Hey, the the thing that really caught my eye earlier this year was big IPOs like Uber and Lyft and Peloton, where the shares, you know, there was a lot of excitement ahead of time, huge valuations, and then the shares really did really poorly, down 30% or so after the IPO. And um, I started digging into it, and, and some of my contacts were, were basically saying, look, look these firms have raised so much money in private markets and often there's a there's a new round called the final private offering the fpo which happens about a year year and a half before the ipo and and a lot of people have been telling me that that you know the the a lot of the smart money and the big firms that used to invest in traditional ipos are now getting in a year or so ahead of time in these other deals and if you look at how those investors have performed in, in, in especially Peloton is a great example. A lot of those investors are still up quite a lot from, right. from, from where they invested a, a year and a half ago, which is super interesting. So how, how early then does one want to be in, in a startup? Is it you know, the early, early stage, Angel? Is there a, kind of a mid-level stage? Or is it, you know, I think about these companies that are private around and they, they stick around for 10 years and counting, you know, and then ultimately go public. And then there's, we've seen as of late, a big disappointment. But you know, when does the big money want to be in there? At what stage of a startup's life as a, as a private entity? I think the the really big investors, Fidelity and Tio Price and, and firms like that, they like to get in about a year and a half or so before an official IPO. Mm -hmm. And and the reason the reason they do that is if you're like um, Fidelity, although it does have a little VC arm, but Fidelity, as a, as a great example, right? It doesn't it doesn't want to go in and invest in a in a one and a half year old company. Um, which has just started out, and, and for one reason, you know those companies may only need three or four million dollars to start with, right? And Fidelity that won't that won't make any impact on their fund whatsoever. And then on the flip side, right, that's super super. That is a super super risky investment. Most startups fail um, very much. So so um, you know you're probably going to lose your money in that. So what? so really really what happens is 
they they try and catch these these internet and 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 SaaS companies that have that have taken off, and so they actually have a customer base. They may not have any profits, but they have a customer base and and an evolving business model, and they're they're huge in 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 that type of sense. And then 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 you try and get in then and then and then and then follow it onto the IPO. Well, and it's interesting, Ali, because you also point out in your story some of the sort of knock-on effects of this, one of which is if these companies are able to raise so much money privately and from investors like the ones you just described, Fidelity, T. Rowe, Vanguard, and others, it puts them in a position where they're looking at an IPO or a public listing, I should say, less about raising money and more about just being public. And that leads you to direct listings, which is how we may end up seeing Airbnb, which is the next big one to go, right? That's right. Spotify has already done this and Slack has already done it too. And so really what they do, it, it, it certainly appeals for companies that that are sort of consumer type internet companies where a lot of people already know them um, so they don't need they don't they don't need to do an official IPO as a kind of branding marketing um, marketing type of event um, so yeah you basically you basically just have a bunch of existing investors who already who already got in the private round and you just on 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 a particular day you just flip a switch and allow allow some of those insiders to start selling and to investors other investors in the public market to start buying and those those two offerings that have already happened the the shares have not performed great but actually on the first few days of the offering the the, the stock was relatively stable which which right. people were concerned about um, just want to mention, and forgive me, um, Ali, we're talking with Ali Barr, a technology reporter at Bloomberg News uh, from our San Francisco studio. Big headline or another headline involving Brexit. UK government is not ruling out seeking a short Brexit delay. So uh, those headlines continuing to come out. So Ali, based on what you're hearing, like, how is this going to put, potentially impact private markets, public markets, if this is what's going on? So I think the first day pop that we've all come to expect from, from big consumer tech listings that that may not happen so much anymore and 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 so and and i think the really important thing is that 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 i mean it, that still is a pretty much a, a really bad thing for the investment banks and anyone who who invested in the ipo for a short amount of time but i don't think it's the disaster that that, that it used to be back in the day because really the 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 logic here i think is pretty compelling which is if you're fidelity and you've already invested 250 million in a, in a company a year and a half ago when, when goldman comes and says mm-hmm. would you like an allocation they're going to be like yeah sure but i don't need you know knock 250 million off that so the demand for a traditional ipo is not is not is not going to be as intense i don't think right well it's a great piece of reporting we really appreciate you breaking it down for us ali Barr, uh the story he wrote along with annie massa and sarah mcbride really lays out where startups are in their fundraising journey and how that has changed pretty dramatically here in 2019 i will note uh, there's a nice story about peloton on the terminal today as well talking about how that stock continues to slide it's now trading around 2150 carol and that's even after uh, a bunch of banks came out banks that were involved in the underwriting of that deal with buy ratings it's down another 3.4 percent today Every day, 
Get ready to say thank you Business Week because this week's issue of the magazine put together the list of the 50 companies you need to watch in 2020. So let's get into it with Dimitri Kessa, Dimitra. You think I would know this by now. Dimitra. Meech. Just call her Meech. Kessanides. You can't do that. I knew her growing up. You can't All do that. Right. She's special projects editor well, at, at Bloomberg Business Week. at least I know how to say her name right. All right. <laughs> Ouch. Close his mic. All right. Special <laughs> projects editor at Bloomberg Business Week. She oversaw the list along with Joe Weber, editor of Business Week, both in our Bloomberg Interactive broker studio in New York. So, Meech, Dimitra, uh, talk to us about what goes into putting this list together, because I always feel like it's this wonderful combination of companies you know or companies you've heard a little bit about and companies you've never heard about. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's all a credit to our fabulous analysts at Bloomberg Intelligence. So we start with them. Um, we definitely bring a little bit of what we know to it, asking about companies that we've been tracking and hearing about, but they're looking at these things so much more carefully. So they're great, and that's we should definitely give a lot of credit So on a silver platter, they say, here are the 50? They, we started out with almost 90, okay. and then whittle it down from there, You know, starting like in late August and moving forward to figure out, well, what, what looks like it's going to have some legs, how, how much of this is really shaping up to be what they thought. And the funnel starts really large. So we've got like 2,000 companies yeah. that you start yeah, with. Yeah, they track more than 2,000. Whittle, 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 whittle. Add some screens, add some more screens, add some more screens. Yeah. And then suddenly you end up with 50. And then that's really when um, uh, we start to get involved because it's like, okay, let's see what you got. Yeah. So what's a standout, Demetra? Um, I think the standout this year, you know, like no surprise, electric vehicles are a really big thing going into 2020. We're talking about Volkswagen, but we're talking about battery makers. I mean, we've got the company that's the largest lithium-ion battery maker on the list in China, Contemporary Amperex. Haven't we've heard of got, that one before, have you, Carol? No, yeah. I told you. I, there's companies I I've never this heard is, of. This is why this, you know, this breaking out of China, starting to supply batteries to Europe. I mean, the theme of what's happening with EVs is extending to, you know, not just the battery businesses, but others. So we're seeing a lot of that. VW across the book, not just on 50 companies to watch, but also in, in the rest of the book, you're going to see uh, really now all of, all of a sudden everybody's talking about how VW is really going to give uh, Tesla a run for its money and really try to surpass it as the biggest EV maker. So next year is going to be a key year for, for that. So that's, that's one big theme, I think. That well, really... I have to say one of the things I loved about this, playing around with it a little bit online this morning, was the different ways you can sort. And one of them that you have is sorting by percentage of female directors. And I found that especially interesting because a company that Joel Weber and I have talked about a lot, Lululemon actually comes out on top Look there. Look at that, 50%. 50%. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of these things, Carol, that makes sense because it is their primary market, women, but listen, Hello? that has not dictated anything in corporate history to date, but no, right. also stock's doing pretty well. Yeah, that, uh, you know, on that last point, you know, you got the 50% female board membership. When, when you see that, when you sort by that, it just really pops. But then you check out the rest of the numbers. It's like 18% estimated sales growth, right. one-year total return of 27%. Like somebody's made a lot of money on Lululemon. Yeah. For yeah, sure. they really turned it around. I mean, remember the scandal a few years ago? It was all yeah. about the see-through yoga pants, right? And we really didn't see how they were going to just recover from that. But that's a really great feature. That's an attempt to start adding more of the social responsibility aspects to these companies over the years. And, you know, we're sort of working our way to that next year and the year after. We'll see more of that in, in what we're writing up on these companies. Some of, some of that is also not super surprising when you consider the companies that don't have a lot of women right. um, in Asia. 
Asia and other, you know, maybe in other parts of the world or in parts of the world, like in the UK, where um, there now there are requirements. Um, so, so that's, it's definitely a great sorting function and you can sort by all of the data points. I'm doing it again with one year total return and uh, Roku comes up, which yeah. I, I kind of find a little surprising. You know, part of this is streaming is obviously going to be a, one of the main themes in 2020. And what, what is it about Roku, uh, Demetra, that, that caught our analyst's eye? I think it's the opportunity that all the companies that are jumping into the streaming sphere present for Roku, right? That more and more you do see people, Disney is getting into it, more of the networks are getting into it. And so you have many more players. It's not just a Netflix, Amazon thing anymore. Roku is up 320% this year alone, year to date. Yeah, Yeah. been crushing it, right? So to that end though, one important thing about companies to watch is like, not all of these are buys or sells. We're not calling anything. We're saying yeah. these are companies that we think will do really well. Mm-hmm. Most of them are probably a little bit more uh, bullish than bearish, but it's meant to be sort of not not a call statement, just a... Bear watching? Good to know. <laughs> good to know. Nice exactly. to know. I like, should, I like the way nice you did that. Good to know. That's interesting. Good to know you. Our list is sorted alphabetically. Yeah. Our readers should know. And then you can sort it by those functions that we mentioned. So that's another thing. It's not a ranking. Uh, just want you all to know that. Kind of love it. Facebook's on there. Uber's on there. Beyond meat, you know? Yeah. We've, been all, we've all been obsessed with plant-based burgers. Right? Demetra, thank you so much. Joel, thank you so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Aaron Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management, over $700 million in assets under management. Aaron joining us on the phone from New York. Aaron, great to have you here uh, with Jason and myself. So interesting day. I mean, I feel like right now it's mostly all about earnings. Yes, Carol. I, thanks for having me back. I, yeah. I think you're you're right. Certainly, um, we we've seen an initial sort of wave of earnings. I think about 80 companies have reported. And um, what's interesting is the companies are beating analyst expectations. But the reality is, when you look at the trend line year over year earnings growth, which is really the most important thing to look at, in my opinion, earnings operating earnings are negative by about three percent. And I think that trend will probably continue through earnings season. So. Um, it's an interesting time. We have a strong dollar right now here in the United States, and of course, the manufacturing data set, both home and abroad, have been extraordinarily weak. And I think there's been this sort of um, commentary suggesting that uh, the consumer in the U.S. will remain immune in the midst of this further deterioration in manufacturing industrial activity. And I sort of question that. You look at LEI, you know, leading economic mm-hmm. indicator data, recently, and that came in at near recession levels at only 0.4 percent. Uh, growth year over year. Saw the home sales data today. That was somewhat weak. And jobs continue to, to um, job growth is occurring, but at a significantly slower pace. And of course, that's not a leading indicator. It's a lagging indicator. So we're a little cautious here on, on, on where, what this all means for the U.S. consumer. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, so in, interesting times. And you layer that on with geopolitical uncertainty, right. uh, Brexit today and uh, Turkey, Syria, and then, of course, the U.S. election is coming upon us and Elizabeth Warren's uh, comments today and, and what this all means for regulation and taxation going forward. It's, uh, these are interesting times for sure. All right, so let's talk about that, Aaron, because we were just talking with our colleague Alex Harris about this notion of the repo market, drawing some attention from Elizabeth Warren, uh, the senator from Massachusetts, and you know one of the front runners certainly for the Democratic nomination has been very vocal about Wall Street and her intention to change the tax structure, to think about private equity specifically, now the repo market. How do you model that out at this point? How candidly worried should Wall Street and investors be about changes under a potential Warren administration? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I and I think um the market hasn't yet come to terms with her her rising stars, not only as a nominee for the Democratic Party, but her potential to defeat the, the incumbent president and I think if you look at tax uh, policy, regulatory policy, and the like, um, expect a, a rather significant headwind. I, I will caveat that by saying, of course, Congress is our legislative branch, the House True. and the Senate. And we need to take a look at the Senate and the risk of the Senate shifting towards the Democratic Party. I don't have a good read on that at the moment, but I would say that an Elizabeth Warren presidency coupled with a House and Senate, both in Democratic hands, could be certainly a headwind for the, for the, for the equity markets. And I'm not making a political statement there. I think that whenever you have one party uh, controlling both the House, the Senate, and the presidency, it generally hasn't been a great thing. Uh, for the market, coupled with her own sort of strident views that are far from capitalistic and a bit more socialistic in nature. And so uh, that's that's my, my spin on, on, on Elizabeth Warren at the moment. So when do you start to make that trade? Well, we, we're positioned somewhat uh, cautiously in some sense. Even within asset classes, Carol, we're mm-hmm. We're thinking about, well, w- what are the airbags or the buffers or shock absorbers that we can put in the portfolio um, at, at this juncture? Uh, not only as we think about politics, but frankly, as we just think about the state of the overall economy, uh, you have the Fed that has shifted gears somewhat dramatically commencing after November of last year. And the, the, the sort of don't fight the Fed mantra is out there again, and, and we generally support uh, that view, but we we do believe that we're we're enter, entering an interesting period of uncertainty uh, as it pertains to sort of political outcomes. Aaron, one thing I do want to ask you, and actually, there's a story in the magazine. It's all about the year ahead, so we're looking at kind of major themes that we've been dealing with and that are probably going to carry over into 2020. Of course, the elections is is one of them. But you know, we've been looking into this idea that we continuously create these walls of worry since the financial crisis and talk about whether, you know, we can get over it and what this means and the problems and so on and so forth. And we get over them and then we just kind of continue on with the market. What's the likelihood that we kind of continue in that vein? Yeah, that, that's that's a good point. I mean, I think that there are all, that another way of, of saying that and something the, the way I frame it is that there are always risks in the market that we can talk about. We can always talk about the glass half empty risks and and uh, and certainly they're, they're always out there and they always have been. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they need to be balanced and, and, you know, take a look at the global equity market as an example. One one sort of reality is that the U.S. equity market over the last 10 years has has risen by, on average, 13.5% a year. Well, emerging markets has, have only, 
you know, average about a 3.5% return. So <laughs> in the midst of this uncertainty, there, there are potential opportunities um, to, to contemplate, you know, where's growth going to be for the next 10 years, which parts of the world are going to be the beneficiaries of that growth, which sectors. I mean, certainly I, I'm not suggesting that if, if you think EM is the only growth area, you then go buy EM, because as we know, 43% of U.S. S&P 500 revenues are coming from um, uh, outside the United States. And so there, there is a thesis that you can own U.S. companies and, and still capture uh, some of these trends. But for sure, risks are, are always out there. They're always impacting markets. And I would just make one other comment, which is that risks that tend to hit the developed markets are perhaps worth looking at a bit more than risks that are hitting small emerging or frontier markets. And that's a bit of the paradigm shift that we're seeing on the geopolitical risk front. It's Brexit. It's, it's uh, you know, the U.S. Um, it's, it's EU and the banking system. Um, it, it's not uh, the Thai bot crisis. It's not the Russian uh, ruble crisis. It's not Mexican peso crisis. So um, in some sense, maybe these risks are worth uh, monitoring a bit more intensely. Yeah, that's some good perspective, um, Aaron. Uh, really appreciate it. Aaron Kennan, he's co-founder and chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. Over $700 million in assets under management. Aaron, on the phone from New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.